All right, everybody, so as you gather your coffee, which clearly is essential to hearing a good sermon, I'm not even making a joke, it's important. Um, I recommend it, I think it makes you holier. I don't know, That I'm mostly joking about that. That is recorded, I don't want somebody to hear this sermon later and do an analysis of it and be like, what's wrong with Dan's theology? Uh, but as you're grabbing your coffee and whatever, if you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then um, if you want to have a look on the next slide here, uh, we have a QR code that you can scan on your phone. It will take you to a page on the website where you can download the sermon slides, Lord willing, later on today or maybe tomorrow, depending on how my day goes, uh, we will upload the sermon audio to there as well. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, I need to address this issue of the church. Now, I would imagine uh, you all already know that when we meet together on First Sunday, typically I address some theological topic. We address it, uh, of course, from a biblical perspective, but in the process, we highlight multiple passages of Scripture uh, to give a comprehensive view of what Scripture has to say about this thing. Uh, today will be no different. However, as we get into this topic of the church and the theology of the church, we call this ecclesiology, and you'll understand why it's called that soon. As we get into this, uh, I recognize there is a variety of topics to cover. Trust me, we're going to hit as many as we can. And as we go, I would encourage you, uh, shoot me an email and say, hey, Pastor Dan, I would really love to know more about this. But let me just tell you why we're addressing this right now. Uh, you might understand, you might have heard, that we are at a time in American evangelicalism when doctrinal ignorance and or even denial of key doctrines is really bad right now. Uh, in fact, 26% of those who claim to be evangelicals deny the inerrancy of Scripture. This is up from 17% in 2016. Now, I don't have to tell you, that is a big leap. That is a major change in what we would say is a critical doctrine. Now, I know that you know, we might be thinking, oh, that's 26% of Christians. Okay, that's bad. No, no, no. 26% of evangelicals. If you're familiar with the historic use of the term evangelical, it is used to refer to people who really do believe the Bible, right? People who really believe Jesus rose from the dead bodily. That's historically, it's, it's historically been used to refer to people like us. But of those people who supposedly should believe all these things, 26% of them are denying the inerrancy of Scripture. Another 38% of evangelicals Deny the objective truth of Christianity. This is up from 32% in 2016. Now think about that. That's inching close to 50% denying that, that Christianity is an objectively true faith that is grounded in reality. Okay, that's a problem, right? Now this is where it gets even worse. 65% of evangelicals or people who claim to be evangelicals, I put it in quotes because... The term has lost most of its meaning, sadly. Deny the reality of the sin nature, or what we would call, what Augustine called original sin. The idea that we are born guilty before God because we are under the headship of Adam at birth, and we were in sin, and we have to be redeemed from it. Okay, so that's 65% denying a biblical worldview. That means the vast majority of people who think they are evangelicals are not evangelicals. That's a big problem. Now, we could go into, there's plenty of other stats. One of the problems we are facing is that a huge portion of pastors do not have a biblical worldview. 
and thus are teaching things that are in error and creating a big problem. And so you can imagine, we would like to say, okay, well, it's the culture is bad and this is going on, but I have to say, historically, and something we have seen in Judges, there has been a failure in the priesthood first that spills over into a false teaching and false belief in the congregation that then spills over into the culture. As we will see today, when the church is doing its job to uphold the truth, we actually push the culture in the right direction. When we fall into error, the culture tends to follow and get worse and worse. This is why we often say it is Christ or chaos, and that is, that's why even what we teach on Sunday, that we could easily think like, you know, we're just in our little enclave and we're just doing our thing on Sunday. No, 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 no. What we do here every Sunday has implications for what is happening in the culture at large. Cool. So one more thing. We're not going to go into great detail about this. Uh, feel free to refer to this later. But we have found uh, through a pretty good analysis of statistics that church attendance decreased among church attenders. So it's kind of funny language, but essentially people who were attending church before COVID, a chunk of them have either attended far less or have switched to some kind of an online thing and are no longer attending live. Like we, we know that's a thing. I will say in a little bit of bright news, the vast majority, something like 87% of people uh, explained no change. So of faithful church goers, a lot of them remain faithful. Praise God. But we have seen those who are maybe a little less faithful already have now fallen all the way off. Um, there is a wider problem, though. When we look at church attendance, by the way, I know I bum you out at first. Don't worry. I got good news. I'm not going to bum you out the whole time. But this is a, a Gallup poll that has essentially looked at the reality of church membership since 1940 when they started tracking it. In 1940, um, you had U.S. church membership was at 73%. That is huge. Now, I'm sure that that represents even people in more liberal churches and whatever, but the idea back then was that it was the norm to be a member of a church. Maybe somebody wasn't a faithful attender to that church, but the idea was you need to be part of a church, and everybody understood that, or a vast majority of the society understood that, and the numbers for that stayed relatively steady. We can see a little bit of a dip there right around 1980. Um, that's a long time, though, of pretty steady in the low 70s on church membership. Um, something happened in the 80s and 90s, and we have seen a radical dip. And you can watch how the numbers just kind of fall off to 64%, 61%, 57%, and on and on and on. We were already down to about 47% in 2020, and we just saw that there has been a decrease in attendance, likely in membership since then. That's, that's the bummer news. Um, I don't pretend to know exactly what's behind that, but I have some theories. And I want to address it very briefly because I would argue that part of the problem that is at hand here is a false conception of even what the church is. And if I don't understand what the church is or why I'm supposed to be a part of it, I am going to easily slip into other things. And so this is anecdotal, these are not like academic things, but just observably things we have seen related to false views of the church. One would be what I would call the social justice view. Um, and this is where a church sees its value as being a voice for minorities. 
Um, whether those minorities are associated with biblical causes or unbiblical causes doesn't seem to matter. Uh, this tends to be kind of a view of progressivism. It tends to be connected to very liberal churches. You might find them doing a lot of good in the sense of, oh, we're going to volunteer and we're going to do this. But typically, they're flying pride flags. They're talking about feminism. You couldn't hear the gospel if you wanted to there. And the focus tends to be on how can we be a, a voice for the marginalized. I would call this the social justice view of church. And so if you go there, the idea is not, oh, we're, we're taking communion today to proclaim the gospel of Christ, or we're going to hear the word of God taught today. It's more of how can we you know, be as politically active for these causes as possible, right? Can we say maybe some of us have probably driven by churches like this, if not actually been in them? Uh, another one, and I think this is not so popular anymore, but what I would call the penance view of church. And the idea is somebody saying like, well, I hate this place. It's boring. I don't want to be here. I don't want to give money here. I don't like the people. But I've done a lot of bad things in my life. And so I go to church as an act of penance uh, to kind of make up for all the bad things I've done. Uh, now, I don't hear this as much as a reason, but... I've heard people talk like this. We're like, well, I got to be there because I've done all this bad and I need to kind of make up for it by attending. Uh, sometimes it's associated with Roman Catholicism, sometimes associated with independent fundamentalist Baptists. I would say you see thinking like this, though, in just about every denomination. It's, it's a view that people have saying, like, I just got to go because I don't like it. Um, another, maybe something that I would say was very common until about. 15 or 20 years ago was what I would call the moralistic therapeutic deism view. Now, believe it or not, there is actual data on this view. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism was probably the reigning understanding in our culture until relatively recently. In moralistic therapeutic deism, God is kind of seen as someone kind of out there that doesn't have any real direct involvement in my life. Uh, that's the deism part of it. But that, hey, I should be good, right? I should be moral. And so people would say, I go to church then to learn how to be moral and, and to feel a little bit better. It's nice to hear kind of a talk that tells me about how to be nice and, and, and people are nice to me here. And then if I really have a big need, I might ask God for help on it. But in general, I just live my life. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, and I would say a lot of people viewed the church as I'll go to this place to learn how to be moral and, and maybe get God to you know, give me some kickback and help me out every now and then. But the idea of me living differently, of me allowing Christ to influence my life, to be sanctified, that was kind of out the window. And I would say, again, I think this was the big reigning view until recently. Some people would say this is still the reigning view in our culture, but what's intriguing to me is now we're in a time where morality has lost all meaning. Doing the opposite of what is moral has been considered moral now, so really tricky to call this the reigning view. What we have often seen now in evangelicalism is what I would call the entertainment slash consumer view. It is associated with kind of the church growth movement uh, or with the attractional movement of church, and the idea is I go to church to kind of be entertained. Now, I might get a really cool-sounding sermon from this church, and so I go there, and then, but you know what? This church has a little bit better kids' ministry, and so what I'll do is I'll drop my kids off at this kids' ministry, I'll go to church over here, or I'm, 
maybe this one has the really good band with the great music and the cool smoke machine. So I go there because I really love it and I love my kids in the kids ministry. And then, you know, I might, you know, watch on TV later my favorite pastor that really like gives me the tingles when he talks, right? And this would be kind of the entertainment consumer view. Now, the problem is that this has been reigning for at least the last 20 years in evangelicalism. And I'll tell you part of why. Because as our society saw the trail off in church membership that we saw before, churches were scrambling to say, what do we do? How do we get people here? And if I am a pastor of a small church, which I am, and I'm doing my best to teach the word, but if I have not disciplined and, and taught and doctrinally catechized people in my church to, not, to understand what we even do here, well, then why wouldn't we go to the church that has the cool smoke machine? I mean, honestly, if I haven't explained it well, if, if people don't have an understanding of what's happening, and then especially if pastors don't get what we're doing, then the pastor says, you know what? Uh, let's, let's get better looking people on the worship team. That'll help a little bit. And then let's get this light show going on and let's do like really cool stuff in the kids ministry. And a lot, um, some of this is not inherently wrong. I think having good looking people up there instead of regular people is pretty sinful, but that's a whole other thing, right? But like, it's not inherently wrong to have a light show, right? But at some point we start, we have to look and say like, I'm trying to just get people here, right? Because I'm thinking the more I entertain them, the more likely they are to stay. So with it comes like, okay, well, then I won't teach certain things that I know step on toes, right? And we've seen this, and we've seen this, haven't we? We know we've seen it. I have been a part of it, brothers and sisters. I've repented of it. But could we just think about this for a minute? I remember being in a church, large church, where we were talking about having a really cool, attractional, you know, service. And we were talking about having one, well, like, this will be our edgiest one, whatever. And I remember when they're talking about what they were doing, and I remember thinking, I actually said, guys... No matter what you do to make this band sound better and sound cooler, I still would rather see the Foo Fighters. And I mean that. Like, as far as if I'm going to be entertained, I still want to see the Rolling Stones more than I want to see this worship band play. No matter how the cool the music sounds, no matter what, I mean, we're not going to beat the world. Like, the Foo I love the Foo Fighters, you guys. The Foo Fighters have a book of music that they have played for years, and guess what? They go town to town playing the same songs with millions of dollars, and, and it's great. I love seeing the Foo Fighters, all right? But on Sunday morning, I'm not here to be the Foo Fighters. Something else has to happen. And yet, we've entertained people so much, we failed to teach, and now we don't understand why they're not sticking around. We're going to address this. I saw two hands. Bob, go ahead, brother. Yes. And that you're not, and that if you're not doing this, then you're not having, you know, you're not yes. having an experience. And this is you're a lesser Christian than other people who actually feel something. A very good note, because we do have an emotional experience there. Uh, I actually saw a little screenshot of some, some young woman had posted, and somebody had shared it. And she said, you know, I used to go to church and say, wow, I'm feeling the Holy Spirit. And I would just move to the music, and it was so wonderful, and I would talk about feeling the Holy Spirit. And then I went to a One Direction concert and got the exact same feeling. And she's like, I realized I didn't love the Holy Spirit. I loved live music. Now, a key thing. I, I think music is given from God, and it does something to us emotionally that is a good thing, right? 
It is a good thing. Um, but if I'm calling that experience and that tingle, whether it be from a presentation in, in speaking, whether it be from you know the chords played just the right way or the lighting just the right thing, whatever it is, if I'm calling that the Holy Spirit, I am lying. I'm, I, you, it's, it's tantamount to blasphemy. And so then we have a problem when somebody says, wait a minute, the world does that better. What you called the Holy Spirit... I, I mean, the world does better, so why would I not go over here? They must have better Holy Spirit than you. But, I mean, this is what we're facing. And what we're facing right now is a mass exodus from the church. If you want to look at what's happening in England right now, I always say England is about 10 to 20 years ahead of us on this in their regression. Um, the churches are empty. And about 20 years ago, the churches were made up of people averaging about 55 to 65 years of age. And now all of those people are in nursing homes and the churches are empty. Um, this is why, in, in, as the attendance of the church has gone down, you had major cities that had entertainment-oriented churches that grew to, tremendously. And what did the rest of the evangelical movement do? We said, let's do whatever that guy is doing. And for a long time, it's, um, this is a big, long intro, guys, but for a long time it was like, let's do what Willow Creek in Chicago is doing, because they've got a lot of people in their big city church. And then we found out not long ago that their pastor, Bill Hybels, did not meet the requirements to be an elder. He was a womanizer and an abuser in that, using that term very loosely there, but like, he wasn't supposed to be a pastor. And every pastor in America looked at him and said, I want to be just like that guy. And now we have guys like, I'm, I know I'm picking on people, but I don't care. I'm so tired of these guys acting as if they're the experts, right? Now we have guys like a Stephen Furtick or an Andy Stanley who are entertaining the heaven out of people. And they are pulling you into something else other than the teaching of the word of God and slowly and insidiously teaching falsehood. And here we are. And then all the other churches look to and say, oh, if we could only be like that. And I say, no, brothers and sisters, anything but that. Uh, yes? Not anything but that, just to be clear. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Are there any nations uh, that where the trend is the opposite, where there's a growth? And, uh... um, in, yes, many. So um, the last I checked, and the data is hard to get, Iran is growing like crazy. Uh, the church is growing in, in Iran. Um, the church is growing in China. Um, brothers and sisters, can I just tell you, my students online through Veritas, I have students in China where it's illegal, and to hear them tell their stories about following Jesus, and I'm like, mm, yes! By the way, they're all Calvinists. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, um, I'm so proud. It is cool, and I'm like, mm, you know what? Maybe someday China is going to take over, but by the time they do, maybe they'll be a Christian nation, and I'll say, come on in and take over if that's the case. I don't think that it's going to be Christian China taking over, just to be clear. All right. So here's what we need to do, brothers and sisters. We need to identify a biblical ecclesiology so that when I show up on a Sunday, I know exactly why I'm here and I understand that what we are doing here is warfare and it has immense value, not just for me personally, but for us as a body, for the culture as a whole. Before I move into it, though, any other questions? I thought I saw another hand. Cool. We're good. All right. So, uh, some things we're going to cover, Lord willing, in the coming series. Uh, 
I thought I would do like one big sermon on it. I'm like, I can't get this in there. We're just not going to do it. So the plan is on some first Sundays. I'm going to just hit on some ecclesiological things. Today we're going to talk about the church as the pillar and ground of truth. Eventually I want to talk about the temple of the Holy Spirit, how God dwells in our midst. Um, we want to talk about the priesthood of all believers and how we come here, all of us as priests, to do a holy work. Um, we're going to talk about the body of Christ, how Christ is head, how there is authority in the church based primarily on him as headship, on his word, but he has established elders and deacons to run things. We're going to talk about the ordinances of baptism and communion. We're going to talk about church discipline, and we're going to talk about discipleship. Should be a good time, but today we're going to talk about 1 Timothy 3. And so I finally did my long intro. Now we're into the text, but hopefully you understand why we're talking about this now. Um, God, I am asking that you would anoint me as I speak today, uh, that you would illuminate the word of God by your Holy Spirit, that you would be glorified, that we would be edified. And God, what I am hoping for, uh, Lord, I am thinking generations ahead, two or three. God, may the children we raise up have a doctrinal, so, doctrinally biblical, solid view of your church and may they do the work well. May they raise up children. May they multiply in number. Lord, by your grace, by the proclamation of the gospel, by faithful living, may we outbreed and out-evangelize our enemies. That the pagans, as they continue to kill their children, Lord, may we multiply and may we catechize them. And may they understand their role to lift up the truth of the gospel. And then, Lord, may we be back to being a Christian nation in another generation or two. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. For 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, if you would join with me in reading, it says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. A quick background on this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his protege Timothy, whom he has left in Ephesus, which I don't think Paul had a favorite city or where he church planted, but if he did, it was probably Ephesus because he seemed to be there the longest and seemed to have, like, I mean, his the, in Acts 20 when he says goodbye, it's a tearful goodbye. Um, and so he's left... I mean, he's left like his best sidekick there probably. And he's writing to Timothy and he's saying, dude, you, you, this is this, I'm trying to get to you, but if I can't, you got to do this. All right? He says, um, he, says, which, he says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So let me draw attention, first of all, um, to this phrase, how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, the implication here is that if there are specific ways in which we are to behave, that there must be some ways that we shouldn't be behaving in the church. Now, already I have to say, uh, this is an uncomfortable thing for many evangelical churches. Because, and to some degree, rightly, we can say, hey man, we're set free in Christ. Right? And praise God, this is true. We're set free in Christ. And there is also a sense in which legalism, we can say, is a very bad thing. We don't want to just legally, like, try to organize everything beyond all recognition. But anytime I bring up something from Scripture that says, hey, this is what God has said we should do when we gather together, how many evangelical pastors especially bristle? When I say things like, brothers, it says 
that an elder needs to meet these qualifications. And it, I mean, it just says it. He needs to be a one-woman man. He needs to, be, he needs to reg, run his household well. He needs to not have fits of anger. He needs to not be a drunkard. And how many times, oh, it seems like it's the majority now, where they're like, come on, Dan, we're people of grace here. Can you not let this go? I mean, yeah, this guy has a past of womanizing, and yeah, he didn't tell us about it, and yeah, he just reoffended yesterday. But like, can't you be a person of grace and let it go? I'm like, no, 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 it's because I believe in God's grace that I say, no, he, God says how we're supposed to do this, and he's not it. I mean, guys, and I know the bigger one is when, when I'm like, guys, it says here, like, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that women aren't supposed to be pastors or teach over men. It says that. And they're like, how come you got to be such a bigot, Dan? Like, come on. Like, you th- are you saying women are lesser? No. I'm saying this is what God's word says, and I believe it. And we're supposed to, so he did give us some rules. And man, I'll tell you, I get hated for that one more than just about anything else. Anyway, so here's the context I'm just going to point out. Paul has given all these things, but he's given this language of like, hey, I told you these things so that you know how to conduct yourself. I just want to briefly highlight some of the things he's mentioned in chapters 1 through 3 before he got to this. He talks about resisting false teaching. He talks about holding fast to the faith, praying for people to be saved. He's talking about like, hey, leaders and everybody, pray for their salvation. Joel Sido, I think, I think that's maybe, this is maybe an area that I would love for us to work on as a church. Praying even for people in authority to come to repentance. It has happened in the past. For crying out loud, I keep thinking about like Constantine. And I know there's questions like, did Constantine really get saved? Or was he just, let me just tell you, somebody was praying for that dude. And he, at the very least, made a profession of faith. And all of a sudden, there was freedom to be a believer in the Roman Empire. The same people have been lighting Christians on fire for hundreds of years. And the leader of that says, Nope, that Jesus is my king. It works. Pray, brothers and sisters. He says, for men to lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. The language of lifting up hands in scripture seemed to be something that would happen corporately. Uh, not that it's wrong to just like praise the Lord and put a hand up, but there was an idea of we lift up hands in submission to the authority of God. So the idea is he's saying to the men, I want you to be submitted to the authority of God and not be angry and disputing all the time for just unjust things. He speaks to the ladies to dress modesty. He tells us about women not teaching or usurping authority over men. By the way, this doesn't mean that women can't teach other women. In fact, they are charged to do so in Titus. It's an important thing. Women should be equipped, I believe, in teaching and equipping women well, so they teach other women well. Anyway, and then he gives us qualifications for elders and deacons. Uh, He's given us a lot of data here. And so it's in that context that he says... I want you to know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God because it matters. Now, could we just say, like, why might it matter? I mean, we're set free in Christ. He's paid all of our sin debts, right? Like, you know, there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. Like, I mean, come on. It's all all equal. Can we not just kind of kick back and do what we feel like is right? Why does it matter? Why 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 does the structure and regulation of worship matter? I think we're going to find out in a second, so just hang on. (laughs) All right. All right. So the next line, he says, ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, this is interesting because household and church, we, we regularly say, yeah, the church is the house of God, right? Why does he have to qualify this by saying the household of God, which is the church of the living God? Like, doesn't that seem redundant? 
Paul's giving us a little bit of a clarification here. When he says church, the Greek word that he uses is ekklesia. Uh, every now and then I get to use some of my Greek study skills, and it's fun. Um, but there's a reason for it here, and it's not just to sound cool. Ekklesia was a term that referred to a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place. The idea of ecclesia, it means, I mean, at its root language, it means called out ones, but it always referred to a physical assembly in which we come out of our homes, we gather together publicly, and that's the church. Now, we could say, and if you look at Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession, there's language of, hey, the church is all of the saints of God, right? It's all of the elect. Praise God, that's the church. We call it the invisible church, whatever. So there is a certain sense in which when, even when you are alone in your home, yes, you are part of the church. But there is fundamentally built into the language of church the idea that we come together publicly. Right? Yes, sometimes we come together publicly in a home, because that's where we meet. Maybe in the first century they met in wineries too. Could be. I don't know. Um, but, like, I mean, seriously, there's a good chance that that might have happened, because there were some wineries around there, I'm just saying. Um, but, no, the idea was you come together, right? You can't merely call yourself part of the church and not be there. Now, soon we're going to talk about the language of the temple of the body of Christ and how this all comes together, and we're going to get into this in another time, how important this is. But the language is, if you are not coming together, you're not really being the church. The implication is, I can't sit in my home and listen to a podcast sermon and call that being the church, right? I can't even look at a Zoom call and say, okay, I'm just this, I'm being the church. Maybe I'm getting some parts of it, but built into this is coming together. And again, another time, the one another commands that, that God gives us involve being together, bearing one another's burdens, greeting one another as we're to do so, breaking bread together. These are things that are physical things, laying hands to pray for the sick. They are things that require you to be there. When I say more on that later, I know that I, I mean like in like a month when I talk about that in more detail, more on that later. Yeah? About the hybrid, you see a lot of satellite churches where they simulcast the um, service into another location and everybody gathers together. I don't think it's a great idea. Um, I, I will tell you, if I am to be a shepherd of a group of people, I have to know them, Right? Like, I should know what's happening in your life, and I should disciple you. And I, as I'm teaching, it should be related to those things, right? If the sermon is being piped in from some guy who doesn't know you at all, um, we can't assume that that teaching is going to be tied to that. Also, there is something about, like, as I'm teaching and I'm looking at you, right? And I'm like, and I know you, like you're my brother. I know your struggles. I know your blessings. I know your strengths. And as I'm teaching and I'm like, there's something about it, brothers and sisters. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that those churches are heretics or anything. For crying out loud, I was a pastor in one of those churches. Um, but I'm going to say, if we look at the theological knowledge, if we look at the, the catechism, the lives of those people, um, I don't think they're being discipled well. So I would say it's less effective. Could we also say, though, that nevertheless the, go the gospel is preached? And so, and I can say, like, I mean, for crying out loud, I think of who was it? I know there are pastors who were led to the Lord by churches that I'm like, I wouldn't even go in that church. But they got saved there. 
Because the gospel still came through. And so that's why I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think it's best. Um, but I'm not going to say that it's necessarily not going to be used of God. It's just going to be like, isn't it much better when we just obey him um, and do it? Yeah. Yes. And I also know that there's competition or like we don't yes. grow fast. And I mean, what do you think that's about? Yeah, some of this is just, I mean, practical issues. If you're in a big town that's growing fast, your church might grow faster than you can plant. And I, I get it. Like there are logistical things. And some of it is a, a lot of pastors have not been properly equipped on what a pastor actually does. I mean, how many guys, most guys will say, seminary didn't prepare me for this. And I'm like, well, yeah, because your seminary is kind of sadly not doing its job. Um, so we know that that's a thing. And so some of it's just like, man, what do you do? And I can say, even at our level, we've had times where I'm like, we got all these people in this house church, but we can't plant yet because we, we haven't been able to train up another elder fast enough. Because, think about, at the heart of this is the commands that God has given for the shepherds to shepherd the people in the church. And so I'm constantly thinking of like, man, who are, are we raising these guys up? Are we doctrinally equipping them? Are they ready? Because I've done times where we spun off a church too fast and it just, pff, because we, or something went bad because we didn't have an equipped, grounded guy there. And so I'm, I'm thinking if you're growing like crazy and you're like, we got hundreds of people here, what do we do? Sometimes the timing is an issue. But sadly, I think that's not normally what's in the back of most of their minds. I mean, sadly, I think the issue is like, how can we keep getting bigger? Because clearly this must be success. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, I mean, this is a quote from Andy Stanley just not long ago where he actually says, shame on you for going to a small church. And this is his quote. Now, almost shouldn't have mentioned this, but but his language is you're being selfish because you've got your little group of friends, but you need to have your kids in a larger church so they can make friends with other kids. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is, you're missing this. And also, like, have you seen our church? Like, my kids are friends with, like, you don't understand what's going on here. Uh, now, he later said, yeah, I'm sorry for saying that. But he didn't clarify, like, okay, what do you mean, though? And so, grace to him, because he did apologize, but he didn't, he also didn't recant it. And he seemed to apologize for how it came across. But I'm like, okay, so what's your view, then? Like, shouldn't small churches not exist? But that is, sadly, the mentality of most people. They're like, if that's a big church, it must be doing it right. And I will tell you, as a guy who pastored a bad church that is big, um, no, like just because it's big doesn't mean you're doing it right. Also doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, right? I mean, I want to be gracious to that. But can I tell you, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not going to name a name, but I, I know of a pastor that is doctrinally solid. Like I would read his books, I would listen to his sermons, and I also wouldn't send people to his church. Because it's so massive, and people come, and they hear something, and they go home. They don't know each other. They're not really discipled. And I'm like, I love that guy. His teaching is good. I think his ecclesiology is weak. Um, and so we know that this is a thing. So I'm, I'm doing more picking on people than I wanted to. I'm not true. I wanted to. But, um, but I was going to try not to, and it just came out anyway. Um, all right, here we go. Here's the thing. This is what I want to mm, I I burn this in us that the church of God assembles. I was really tempted to put like an Avengers reference in here, but I felt like it would cheapen it. Um, so no picture of that. 
Uh, so let me draw attention, um, as long as I'm picking on Andy Stanley, it was during COVID that he made a comment. He says, hey, people are saying that the Bible commands us to come together. And he's like, it's just not true. And I'm like, you are either a liar or you are an ill-equipped teacher. And either way, you are not really qualified to teach. Um, I'll just draw attention here to what we see in Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter to the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Pausing there for a moment. Anybody know what this is a reference to? Yes, he's talking about the Holy of Holies and how on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in there, would sprinkle onto the mercy seat the blood of the Lamb, and he would, he's, he's using all of this language, and he, of course there's the, there's the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else, and he's saying now, we get to go there because Christ has been our perfect high priest and has been our perfect sacrificial lamb. It's the fulfillment of all the typology of the Old Testament, all of the shadows that came before us. All of it is fulfilled. And he's using this language of like the temple of God and the holy of holies, and we come into it because Christ is our sacrificial lamb and high priest. Reading on. He even says our hearts sprinkled clean, just like this blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. He says, let us hold fast. I'm sorry. Um, so let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water, with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Confession of our hope being the gospel. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You understand what the, the way he's bringing all this together? In the Old Testament, you had the temple, you had priests, you had the sacrificial system that was emphasizing the holiness of God and how you cannot come before him because you are not holy and there has to be a blood sacrifice and all of these things. And now he's saying, our great high priest, the Lamb of God, has sacrificed for you so that you can come before God in the holy of holies. Nobody else but one guy could do this before. And now all of us have access to the presence of God. And he's like, so then... Get to church, right? I mean, like, he's like, so then, like, gather together. Don't neglect this assembly for crying out loud. Now, I don't want to stretch this metaphor too far, but here we have many times in the New Testament where the language is that we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're called living stones coming together. We're the priesthood of all believers. And now, he's not pounding that down as much. He's just saying, like, given all of this, don't neglect meeting together. But I would say if we're looking at Peter's writings in First and Second Peter and some other places, the language is like, we are the living stones and the priests in this new covenant. Can you imagine if you were in the Old Testament, Second Temple Judaism, and it's time to go on the Day of Atonement to the temple, and you get there, and the stones of the temple decided not to get there that day, and they're just not assembling into the temple. And also, the priest 
slept in uh, because he was up too late the night before, or he didn't come because the Browns were going to be playing early. And so you get to the temple, and the stones aren't there, and the, and the priests aren't there, and, and, or maybe just some of them are, and the whole thing is just not happening as it should. Now, I don't want to overemphasize the metaphor, but he's not joking around. The apostles are writing and saying, you are the body of Christ, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he dwells in you, you are the priesthood, a holy nation, get here. All right, anyway, with all that in mind, I think I've sufficiently smacked Andy Stanley in the face um, with the love of Christ and the truth of God. Um, He'll never listen to this, but if he did, (laughs) I stand by what I said. Anyway, all right, so uh, continuing on, uh, so this is what we're getting to here. He says, he's referring to, the, so we've talked about the household of God, ecclesia, where the church, we assemble, that's what's built into here. And then he says, of the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The, the language here is as the church has this role to be a pillar for the truth. Now, I'm just going to very briefly acknowledge that a lot of Roman Catholic apologists cite this passage, and they, I think they might have a version that says foundation of the truth. And so there are those in Roman Catholic theology that would say, hey, uh, we're, we're the reason why you have truth. And they'll say, like, the gospel is based on us, and then so they build in their whole view of the magisterium and the hierarchy of the priesthood, and they're basically like, you wouldn't have the Bible without us, we decide what's in the Bible, and it gets into this whole big mess. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail other than to say, like, they're wrong. And we're going to talk about why. I want to be very cautious because I I pick on the Roman Catholics every now and then. I do believe that there are believers within the Roman Catholic Church, right? And I I do believe that there are many who just hear the gospel still. Um, But the doctrine, there's just some bad doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm praying for repentance out of the bad doctrine. And I'm I'm seeing little things that I'm like, well, that got better. That got a little bit better. That got worse. Um, Keep praying. Anyway, um, here's the word. The two words that we see here... um, uh, for pillar and buttress that we translate here. One is stulos, uh, and it just means pillar or column, not too complicated there. But every time it is used, it's used to refer to something that is kind of stiff and kind of holding something up, right? Um, we only see it in scripture used three times, this being one of them. The other ones are Romans 3.12 and 10.1. Both of those are just, I mean, think of a column, all right? Think of almost like just a Roman column that just holds something up, right? Um, holds it up high, as opposed to a foundation that's like down here in the basis of everything. This is something that puts something on display. Cool? All right. Uh, the other word that is translated here, buttress, uh, is, hold on, hedrioma, which I'm not great at my Greek pronunciation anymore. Uh, this word is only used here in the New Testament, um, and it just means support. Um, seems to be the same kind of thing. It gets translated as buttress, and if you think of... Um, what comes to mind is flying buttresses on Gothic architecture, right? You guys familiar with Gothic architecture where you have like this big Gothic temple and hanging off the side is like this, you know, this like big like column thing that sticks out. Like it, it kind of gives, like it's still this like lifting something up. So column, buttress, uh, same kind of ideas. It's something that lifts something else up high, okay? So here's the thing. There is another word for foundation that we see used in Scripture, not used here. If Paul wanted to say foundation, he would have used the word for foundation. Uh, he's not using it here, uh, which, by the way, uh, themelion is the word for, th- for, uh, for foundation. He doesn't use that here. 
The language is that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth in the sense of it's lifting something up as if to put it on display. Cool? All right. So reading on. What is this truth that is being lifted up? Do I have any guesses off the bat? What do you think he's referring to? I always I want to want to want to do like a, where somebody's like, well, the answer is always Jesus, right? And so somebody's like, Jesus? <laughs> um, yeah, the gospel, man. I mean, ultimately, it's the gospel. Notice he even gives an allusion to this. Now, I'm going to just acknowledge Paul uses language sometimes that I'm like, okay, we don't talk like that. Um, Right, And so I'm going to just kind of exegete Paul a little bit more here. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay. I mean, I think we could say, if one of us is being godly, that's a mystery. Right? How did that happen? Um, I don't think that's exactly what Paul's saying, though. Uh, So the language here is a little bit odd. Here he's using the term godliness, um, and we can kind of dig into the Greek a little bit. He seems to be referring to piety or devotion. Right? Not just like, ooh, you're super holy, but the idea of you are living a life of devotion to God and it's evident. Right? So the idea is you you are living a life of godliness, doesn't mean you're perfect, you're devoted to the Lord, you're praying, you're coming to church, you're you're talking to other people, like you are devoted. This seems to be the way in which he's using godliness, right? Not moral perfection, but maybe working on that, right? Um he seems to be referring to this, and then I will point out, when we see mystery used in scripture. We're not talking about Scooby and the gang and the mystery machine and like spooky stuff, right? But really, like we think of that. I mean, I'm just going to be really honest. My generation, I hear mystery. I think of the mystery machine and I think of something that is unknown, right? That's what we think of in mystery. Even now in colloquial terms, we use mystery to refer to something that's weird, unexplained, unknown. That is not how mystery is used in the New Testament. The language of mystery in the New Testament is, is about something that was once unknown and is now known. Pretty much every time, that is a reference to the gospel or some aspect of the gospel. So Paul here is referring to the mystery of godliness. And notice, now, I'm, I'm citing, I'm going to address, like, this is what other commentaries agree on. I tend to agree. So the phrase seems to be saying this, that the Christian life of devotion to God, godliness, is based on what has now been revealed but was once unknown, mystery, which is, of course, God's plan to redeem us through the perfect atoning death and bodily resurrection of Christ. The language here seems to be, my devotion to God is based on what was once unknown and is now known. That is the gospel of Christ's saving work. Cool? Um, And so then he reiterates this in this little phrasing here. And I'll just notice... We, we don't know if Paul made this one up and put it on here or if it was one of those pretextual creeds that Christians were already passing around that Paul's marking down. We know those existed. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I gave to you what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and he kind of recites this thing. But notice this language. He's essentially reiterating the gospel here. He's talking about Christ, that he was manifested in the flesh, that's the incarnation, vindicated by the Spirit, Now, I think we could say that, yes, the Holy Spirit vindicated Christ, showed, but the language of vindication is like a proof language. Um, We talk about how the Holy Spirit resurrected Christ. So this is the language language of the resurrection. 
right? He is seen by the angels. He made many appearances. Uh, proclaimed among the nations. That's the proclamation of the gospel throughout the nations. That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Believed on in the world. He has faithful followers and taken up into glory. That's the ascension. This is a reiteration of the gospel and some supports for the gospel. And he's talking about this being the mystery. So notice, Paul has gone through all of these things that we're supposed to do in our contact, conduct in the church, and then he gets to this and he's like, hey, we're the pillar and buttress of truth. We're the assembled saints that come together to hold up the gospel, and everything seems to come back to that. And then he goes on to kind of reiterate the gospel in that little phrase. I will just point out, this is what we mean when we say we are a gospel-centered church. I mean, think about like we proclaim the gospel, we teach the gospel. When we take communion, what's happening? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're remembering the gospel. What happens when we baptize someone? We're proclaiming the fact that they're putting their faith in the triune Godhead and the atoning work of Christ, that we're devoted to Christ, we put our trust in him. We're lifting up the gospel. So communion lifts up the gospel. Baptism lifts up the gospel. When we come together and assemble, we're coming together for the purpose of lifting up the gospel. When I teach, or when whoever teaches, when Adam or Dan or whoever else, we're lifting up the gospel. And we could say even, like, this list is not exhaustive. I could say that, all right, when we're giving, we're giving to the work of the Lord. We're proclaiming the gospel. When we create a church library with good doctrinal stuff, we're lifting up the gospel. When I'm using the gifts that God has given me, or you're using the gifts God has given me and you're encouraging, you're lifting up the gospel. When you host someone in your home, all of these things are for the purpose of lifting up the gospel of Christ's atoning death death and resurrection that we know changes hearts and that when people obey it, turn into followers of Christ who obey his law. And let me just tell you, that has a direct implicit, more than implicit, a direct impact on the culture. It's a wonderful thing. So I will just encourage us when we start thinking about why we come together and what we do, it's to lift up the gospel. There are churches that call themselves gospel-centered, and they mean gospel-centered in the fact of like, okay, we mention the gospel, and it's like a centerpiece at a nice banquet table, and, and I could still have the banquet, and if you took out the centerpiece, we'd be like, hmm, it doesn't look as pretty, but you could still get by with it. That's not what we mean, right? We mean gospel-centered in the sense that everything is connected, right? Every week when we're teaching, we're saying, how does this relate to the gospel? Now, sometimes that relation is indirect. Like, we will acknowledge that. Like, there are passages, like, when we're going over the genealogies in the Old Testament, I mean, there's not a gospel message in there, but let me just tell you, it's tying together the, the trail from the seed of woman all the way to Christ. It does have a direct, a direct relation to the gospel. But yeah, I'll acknowledge that it's not reiterating the gospel there. It's just, but everything, notice this is what we're doing. Everything is gospel-centered every time. Uh, what do we do when we're praying and confessing sins one to another? We're saying, hey, brother, Christ paid that sin debt. Like, you go and sin no more. Praise God, this is good. Everything comes back to the gospel. And so when we come to, I'm just going to get to it, if we have another pandemic or plandemic or whatever it might be, whatever else happens again, and they try to keep us from coming together, I, I just have to say, our plan is to righteously disobey because we are the pillar and ground of church of truth in the culture. This is what we do. And when the church is seen as non-essential, everything else starts to fall apart. Could we just point out that all of this insanity that is beyond recognition, all of the transgender ideology and all of these other things that is on steroids since 2020 seems to pair 
perfectly with the church abdicating its role to meet together. Brothers and sisters, we will not tolerate it anymore. Cool? Now, that's not the only reason I'm bringing this up. There's a whole lot of things we're going to talk about more. But brothers and sisters, understand when we come together that everything we do is to proclaim the gospel. Um, Cool. So I have a couple of books, three books that I'm going to recommend. Uh, One is the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It is the confession that our church holds to. Uh, There's a lot of good ones. It doesn't mean that they're they're all just wrong that you know like i really like westminster confession right we like this one we think we think it's the best we got good brothers and sisters that use other ones i tease them but i'm trying to make sure you understand that we're not worshiping london baptist confession it's just a really good one um if you download the sermon slides and click on that image of london baptist confession it will take you to uh an online version of it that you can look through and read through there's some good stuff in there on the church on communion and all these other things another book i'm recommending here is gashmu saith it i mean everybody's heard of gashmu right that's a joke does anybody know who gashmu is right um that's good that's the point of the title uh, Gashmu, when Nehemiah was building the city of God's walls in Jerusalem, and the enemies of the people of God were coming to him and saying, hey, you're making our enemies mad by building defensive structures. Think about how insane that sounds, right? It's like, of course. And I'm like, tell them to pound sand. But it was other Jewish people that were trying to say, like, you're making our enemies mad. Don't. Right? And by the way, it's going to go bad for us. Gashmu saith it. Apparently, Gashmu at that time was somebody who, if he said something, it meant something. But none of us have heard of him ever since then. You know why? The people of God are still here. Nehemiah did not listen to those fools who tried to say that Gashmu's word mattered when God had already spoken. So this book is a great one on building Christian community. Recommend it. Gashmu saith it. And then the last book here is uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. And it goes through just things that like we know are part of healthy churches. Uh, highly recommend this book. As you read it, you might say like, Dan, we need to do this thing better. I will welcome the feedback on it. Or I might just say, who's Mark Dever? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, I will just encourage, uh, I highly recommend reading that book. We do not have those in the library yet because... I hadn't planned what books when we were buying books. It's a whole thing. Um, But uh, I do recommend these highly. Uh, Here's what I will say. I don't have some big, like, altar call or here's what I want you to do. I just want you to know how central the gospel is and how us coming together and us doing all the things we do is vital, not just simply because we like it, not just simply because sometimes we don't like it, uh, not just simply because it's a good thing to do, because this is warfare against our enemy, and this is glory to God. It builds up ourselves, it builds up our children, and this is how we take the culture back by lifting up the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for what you have done. Uh, Lord, give us a clear vision. Vision is maybe not the right word. A clear understanding for what you have spoken. Lord, may we show up faithfully and do the work of your priesthood uh, by lifting up the gospel. May your kingdom come and will be done. We ask all of it in in Christ's name. Amen. And who is it that's on for the gospel? Keith? Keith, go for it, brother.